so um, it came as a surprise. The National Zoo was very secretive about when exactly these pandas were going to leave Washington. William Wan is an enterprise reporter for The Post. This week, he found himself closely tracking the movements of some local celebrities, DC's three giant pandas. They called the National Zoo their home until Wednesday. You know, they told a few reporters the night before. And so, uh, you know, even before the sun was up, the zoo was pretty bustling with activity. They had a podium set up for speeches and remarks by the zoo officials and Chinese dignitaries. As a diplomat in Washington, I say to them, goodbye and bon voyage. As a Chinese government official, I say to them, welcome back. And then it was just a lot of waiting. It was a lot of reporters kind of in a group, in a scrum, waiting to see these pandas carried out on these crates. Yep. She has no pause out, actually. She does They have these crates that they've been putting in the enclosure to get them used to it, putting food in there for them. Do you see your fruitsicle? And uh, so they walk them into these crates, they close those up, they haul them by a forklift onto these three waiting FedEx trucks. And these FedEx trucks were escorted by police through the streets of Washington to Dulles Airport. And there, there was this freight airplane just devoted to these pandas. Um, and it's a really long flight from here to, uh, they're going to Chengdu, China, where they'll live out the rest of their lives. The pandas' exit has left a lot of people in D.C. bereft. But it's not the only place waving goodbye to the bears. In recent years, other U.S. cities have seen their pandas recalled to China. And so there's only four pandas left in the entire United States. Once those are gone, which is happening sometime in the next year, there will be no pandas at all left in anywhere in America. And William says this isn't just a story about pandas leaving the U.S. It's about their role as a powerful diplomatic tool for China. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Friday, November 10th. I'm your guest host, Kim Belware. Today, how China and the U.S. have used cuddly pandas to shore up a sometimes rocky relationship, and why this era of bear-based cooperation may be ending. For our listeners around the world, can you just tell us a bit about how beloved these pandas have been at the National Zoo? Oh, it's hard to capture exactly. I would say when I first arrived in, in D.C. In, in like around 2003, like even then they're everywhere. Like you buy a Metro card to ride on the subway in D.C. and they're on your cards. You like go out on the street. At that time, there were like these statues. Every major intersection in the, in the city had a huge statue of a panda painted different ways, like a disco ball panda or a, um, you know, or a, a 60s panda or like early morning breakfast panda. And if you go to any gift shop anywhere on the National Mall at any of the museums, like panda has become kind of like the unofficial mascot of the city. And so you have these huge like crowds that go there every single day just to see them. You have these fan clubs that have formed where 
their kind of entire life, like any free waking moment is devoted to like capturing the every move of the mother panda or the father panda, or especially the baby pandas. Like people have lost their minds often over the years whenever a baby is born. Yeah, I feel like every time I went to the National Zoo by myself or with a friend, you could always guarantee to find some people around the panda exhibit, whether the weather was good or bad or, you know, if they were going to get a glimpse of them. Do you have any recollections of what it was like just going there yourself and and seeing kind of how this excitement has lasted for the pandas for so many years? You know, I'm kind of older and maybe a little too cynical. And so I thought, oh, you know, you know, like they're cute, cuddly bears. Fine. That's fine. And then I had kids and like the pandas are on, on an objective, factual basis. They are super cute. And um, I don't know, it's weird. Like, I, you know, I spent some time in China as a foreign correspondent for the Post. And like, I had a chance to see some of these pandas up close when when they're babies they like do this weird funny thing where they often tumble over each other or tumble down they love like doing somersaults and tumbling down things when they're when they're young and um it's really hard not to love them Uh, the one thing that was so interesting is they look so cuddly and cute but like i had a chance to actually touch some pandas up close and there it's like petting a bristle Um, but even that doesn't take away from their cute I mean it's just like they're amazing creatures I'm glad we have facts it's hard to stay objective (laughs) I know I I feel a little bit uh, you know we're supposed to be factual objective reporters I think objectively they are like unique and cute though I think that would withstand a fact check Um, (laughs) so William Take us back to the start of this. When did D.C. first welcome these bear ambassadors from China? And why did that happen? It is kind of a crazy story. It all began at a dinner party in 1972. U.S. and China had been adversaries for for decades. You know, during the height of the Cold War, like, we didn't even really have communication between the two countries And so Nixon, in a very kind of historic moment in his presidency, he became the first president to ever visit the People's Republic of China. This is after the communist leaders took over China. And so on that very first visit, on the very first night when he arrived with his wife, Pat Nixon, they have this banquet. And Pat Nixon, his wife, is seated right next to the premier, Zhou Enlai. And he is the most powerful person in China, second only to Chairman Mao. She sees this tin of cigarettes lying on the dining table with a panda logo on it. And she says, oh, those are cute. And he says, "Um, oh, would you like some? And she says, like some cigarettes? And he says, no, pandas. <laughs> and he's offering to send. And so within two months, like, you have the first pandas arriving in D.C. And it was a really big deal. You had the first lady, Pat Nixon, on hand to welcome them. I am pleased to be here and accept the precious gift of the pandas and also you had other uh, like thousands of people lined up and waiting uh, to see them. They even had these, you, when you read like newspaper accounts from that time, you had headlines like, 
Hanna Bear's Melt Hearts. <laughs> it was like a really big deal when they first arrived. Pat Nixon was one of many, many people who have used this pun since. And she, when they arrived, she said, I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, so how did it actually work? Was there fine print into this international bear loan? So early on, China had this kind of, they were using the pandas as a diplomatic tool, especially that first gift to America of those two pandas. They saw how it was just like a wild success. Like you could not have drawn up a better kind of diplomatic gesture that way. Like you had thousands of people just on that first day and then millions, you know, in the years since visiting the pandas. It's this kind of like soft power gesture that was hugely successful. So they did more of these gifts. They gifted pandas to Japan, the like countries that they were trying to turn into trading partners, into allies even. Um, but over time, so the first ones were outright gifts, like here, these are for you. And then in, you know, the 90s, 2000s, it changed into these loans where it was, uh, they started charging a lot of money and very limited in, in years. And so now they're on these like you know, five to 10 year loans, often for like $500,000 per panda per year. So quite expensive. But at the end of that, the terms of the loans, they have the right to bring back the pandas. And every cub born to any panda abroad in the fine print, it says, is property of China. Okay, so you mentioned Japan. What other countries has China given pandas to? Is this a common strategy they use? Oh, so currently there's about 20 different countries that have pandas. The strategy, it's interesting, if you trace the, they, they call this panda diplomacy. So if you trace kind of the arc of panda diplomacy, you will see over time, like, which countries China cares most about at different points of time. So there was even these studies done. There was one study that kind of tracked uranium contracts between China and countries like Canada and you know, France and Australia. And whenever they gave them uh, panda loans, it like coincided very precisely with like, oh, there's a uranium deal or a contract going on. Or with like neighbors like Singapore and Malaysia and, and, and Thailand when they signed like free trade agreements. There's even like a study that showed the number of pandas each country gets, it corresponds really strongly with that country's trade volume with China. In this moment of, uh, you know, geopolitical tensions where U.S. and Russia are like staunch, you know, adversaries, <laughs> China just recently presented Vladimir Putin with two pandas on a long, like, 15-year loan. So this is just in 2019, so they're not going to be losing their pandas like us anytime soon. So pandas go from this cocktail reception gift, this dinner gift, to like you said, panda diplomacy. So how did pandas become political? What did it represent for the relationship between the U.S. and China that they trusted us with these animals for so many decades? You know, if you ask some experts, they would say, you know, pandas have always been political in some ways. Like, um, before the communists took over in 1949, the 
Animals that were most kind of symbolic and culturally used in China were like dragon, phoenix, uh, tigers, cranes. It's only after 1949, like panda became this very safe kind of animal to use as China's national symbol. And so for, for the U.S.-China relationship, like pandas were a really great way to present this non-threatening, soft, cuddly, warm, and welcoming country, you know? Um, and it was very successful in that way, I think. After the break, why the panda's departure is a wake-up call for the complicated times between the U.S. and China, and what it all means for the pandas. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Okay, so after more than 50 years, it seemed like this moment of panda diplomacy between the U.S. and China is coming to a close. What happened here? How did this relationship start to break down? Oh, it's... uh it's tough. So, you know, there's always been tensions. You know, you think about the Tiananmen kind of massacre. You think about some of the human rights abuses that U.S. is always lecturing China about and that China really hates. But like around the 2000s, so when you had this economic recession across the world, China emerged from that feeling and realizing they had much more power in the world than they previously thought. Or, or previously had. And, you know, at the same time, you have like the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Anyways, China started really feeling themselves, you know, like their attitude changed from like, we need to keep quiet, build our strength to like, we are strong. No one tells us what to do. Certainly not U.S. We are every bit as influential and as powerful on the world stage as you are. And so it led to this this relationship turning more into like a frenemy kind of relationship where, you know, there's still huge trading partners between U.S. and China, but like there started to trickle in all of this um, kind of adversarial elements. You had like cyber attacks. They were, Chinese companies were stealing huge amounts of intellectual property um, from, from U.S. companies and longstanding challenges like what to do about Taiwan, they became even bigger. And you flash forward to now, like it has been maybe the last three, four years, it's been one of the toughest times in U.S.-China relationship. Like you think about the trade wars that Trump launched as president, even before president, like campaigning about China. We are now making it clear to China 
that after years of targeting our industries and stealing our intellectual property, how they're eating our lunch and stealing our jobs. You think about the Chinese spy balloon that was shot down, um, you know, just a few months ago while it was drifting over the United States and all the kind of scare language about, like, what are they looking at over our heads? And you even had them, like, U.S. closed down a consulate of China's in, in the U.S., so China retaliated by closing down one of their consulates. Like, it's been, the relationship is kind of in tatters. It's at a pretty low point right now. So it sounds like things have sort of been deteriorating between the U.S. and China diplomatically for several years. Were there any reasons that were related to the pandas themselves to return them to China? Uh, you know, on the face of it, what China and the National Zoo are saying is there was this loan. The loan period expires December 7th. Uh, the pandas are getting older, so, you know, they should be returned to China. It's part of the agreement. But China renews its loans all the time. It also sends new pandas to other countries all the time, too. So just this kind of retrieval of every single panda at every single zoo in the U.S., it's a way to send a message without actually saying it out loud of like, things are things are pretty bad right now in the relationship. But I, I don't know if it's necessarily like a punishment kind of action as much of it, it is just the reflection of like, this is the sad state of things right now between us. Yeah, taking back this beloved cuddly gift uh, is a hard message to miss. What does the panda's departure say to you about the relationship now between the U.S. and China? I mean, we are speaking to you just days before Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping are expected to meet in San Francisco at the big Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Yeah, I mean, I've been to some of these summits before. They are really big deals. Um, in this case, it's a, it's an especially big deal because, you know, Biden and Xi, they haven't seen each other face to face for for a while, I think. Um, and especially during this year, not during this year where, where you've had so many clashes over so many things. And so I don't think there's not really any breakthroughs that are expected. What's kind of looming over a lot of this, this year and in past and, and in future is the future of Taiwan. Like that is maybe the biggest kind of point of contention when it comes to China and, and US. China sees Taiwan as part of its territory and is looking to unify Taiwan with the mainland. And meanwhile, US has this policy of supporting Taiwan and providing military support to the island. Um, so it, th that puts this relationship kind of in a bind. There's there's no way about around that. I want to go back to something we talked about uh, when we first started chatting, which was the scene from Wednesday. We heard about the bears being loaded onto a plane at Dulles. Where do they go next? What's going to happen to them? <laughs> I've made that flight from D.C. to China many times, but their flight is kind of crazy. So because of the Ukraine war, there's so many like geopolitical overtones to all of this. Because of the Ukraine war, the, the plane carrying the pandas can't fly over Russia airspace. So instead of going through the Atlantic, they have to go all the way through the Pacific. Oh my gosh. It's going to take them 19 hours. It's like an additional five hours. It's so long that they have to stop in Alaska just to refuel and like change out the entire crew. 
so yeah, so 19 hours later, they'll arrive in Chengdu. China has, in recent years, they've like created these um, really amazing research compounds for, for panda research and conservation. And so they'll be, you know, living in one of those. And I think it, it, it's a good life and it's good for them to get the care of scientists in China when when they're older and but there there's also this kind of you know what is home for them like they, they lived in DC most of their life and um, in China you know there's all this rhetoric among the netizens the people online who are saying bring pandas home and like you know after some pandas have died in the US they're you know even accusing US uh, zookeepers of like malnourishment and mistreatment of pandas and campaigns like that. Of all the panda superfans that you've talked to, have any interactions stood out in particular? You know, any conversations you've been having with people in recent days who have been following their departure really closely? There, well, even among the superest super fans, I would have to say there was one that really just touched my heart. Like, there's a woman named Frances Nguyen um, who was telling me about how she has been a fan of these pandas at the DC Zoo for like two decades. And she was telling me the first days of her being a fan, what made her fall in love. And it just, was so touching like she was because often I think we make fun of these panda fans and we say they're like these ridiculous people who spend hours you know taking a zillion zillion photos of these pandas like how many more photos could you have of a panda but she was telling me why she fell in love with them and she was her family came from um, Vietnam she was born there and her mother and father fled Vietnam during the war on boats leaving her behind with her aunt. And she was telling me how, like, that that separation from her mom, like, when she first saw the panda mom and her cub, Taishan, the first panda cub she had ever given birth to that, that survived, like, just watching that relationship, it made her, it touched something deep in her that she she didn't even know was there. The scar of being separated from her own mom she told me, you know, the pandas taught me how to love. They taught me how to experience joy. Uh, they gave me these friends with the other panda fans. She ended up forming this panda club um, called Pandas Unlimited, where they all like hang out at the zoo enclosure for hours at a time with each other. And that's where she met her husband. He, she told me their love story of how he saw her shooting the panda family with a telephoto lens in the rain. And you know, a few days later, he showed up with a, a like rain cover, custom fit for her telephoto lens. And she said, that's when I started having feelings for him. And, you know, because of the pandas, you know, she met her husband. They now have two cubs of their own, these two children that she takes to the zoo. And I think there's something meaningful about, I mean, it's not just about the pandas. It's about the relationships and the joy that they've brought people and the meaning that they've, they've brought them. So I think there's a lot there. It's not, it's not just pandas for pandas' sake, too. It's, it's about people and relationships as well. I mean, it's it's clear that the pandas have been so meaningful and and have 
frankly changed some people's lives. I mean, they've been hugely, hugely poignant for so many Americans. Is there any hope now that the pandas will ever return to the U.S.? It's really hard to say. You know, I have a colleague, Mike Ruane, who's been talking to the zoo folks and have covered them for years. And um, even in those conversations, they're keeping very, you know, close to the vest what the negotiations are like. It's hard to say because, you know, the San Diego Zoo gave, you know, returned their pandas in 2019 with the hope of getting getting a new agreement. They still don't have any pandas. It's been It's been quite a few years. It's really hard to say. Like the priority of Chinese officials is not necessarily U.S. now. They most recently gave, um, they sent their first panda ever to the Middle East, to Qatar. That's the region that they're really trying to develop ties with. It was ahead of the World Cup, trying to get kind of global alliances and, and partners there. So it's hard to say what's in the future for U.S.-China pandas. And I understand the Smithsonian is trying to keep a candle burning for the pandas with uh, some renovations. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so they, you know, there's no pandas left to take care of, but they still plan to proceed with, it's a 1.7 million renovation of the panda enclosure, the complex where they lived. And, you know, the plan is to have this beautiful home ready for that day when U.S. and China officials can move past these tensions that are consuming them both. And, you know, it's like a day when they can agree once again, like they used to, on the this lowest common denominator bar of international relations. Yes, we can both agree, pandas are cute. Like when they reach that day, there will be this new home renovated and ready for them at the National Zoo. William, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Thanks for having me. William Wan is an enterprise reporter for The Post. And just a quick update. Since we recorded this conversation, the pandas did touch down safely in China. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Monica Campbell. It was mixed by Sam Baer. Thanks to Ariel Plotnick, Michael Ruane, and Lee Powell. Have a great weekend. And remember, if you love the show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Elahe Izadi, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop Sand, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Renee Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Trinity Webster Bass. I'm your guest host, Kim Bellware. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>